This morning, please turn your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Hosea. We'll begin in chapter 14 today. Hosea chapter 14. We'll begin our text today in verse 4. As we come to the close of this series on Hosea, I was thinking about the title of this series, and we call this series Relentless Love. And we chose this word to describe the love of God in the book of Hosea. And I looked at the Webster's Dictionary.com definition of relentless, and relentless According to Dictionary.com, it says, Showing no abatement of intensity, strength, or pace. Showing no abatement of intensity, or strength, or pace. When the unfaithful wife comes home pregnant by another man, there is no weakening in the intensity of her husband's love. And this is the quality of love that God shows his people. This is the strong love that we will explore today as we close out this series. In the Old Testament book of Hosea, it's the story of a broken vow, of a broken home, of a broken heart, a broken life. And it could be told from any city around the globe. We find that Hosea is a young man and he's told by God to marry a promiscuous woman named Gomer. And God tells Hosea that this marriage to Gomer is a word picture of our relationship with God. And Hosea obeys God and marries Gomer, and soon children are born. And the names of the children give us insight into the heart of God. And even though Gomer continues to be unfaithful to Hosea, he refuses to divorce her. And then one day, Gomer leaves, leaves Hosea and the kids, but He loved Gomer, and he could not forget her. And even when Gomer was used and abused by many men, there was one man who owned her like a slave. And when he was done with Gomer, he put her up for sale. Well, Hosea showed up to that slave auction, bid for her, and bought back his own wife. Hosea brought her home and restored and reconciled her to himself. Hosea chapter 14, verse 4. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree, his fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in a shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. This is God's word for us today. Today in our text, we're going to look at how strong God's love is and how relentless it is. And so as we see our text, God's love is strong and relentless because number one, He will never let us go. He will never let us go. In Hosea chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God, 
Your sins have been your downfall. And I think this is an appropriate summary statement as Israel got lost in worshiping other gods and committing spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness against God. This describes what has painfully happened with Gomer's unfaithfulness. Sin is always, sin is always our, our downfall. In verse 2 in Hosea 14, it says, Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. And even though we are unfaithful, God always calls us back home. There is a recognition that regardless of our unfaithfulness, God invites us. He invites us back home. And God knows that when we come home, we'll still have baggage. We'll still have issues and hang-ups and habits that are harmful and that are going to be our downfall. And he wants us to come back home so that we can grow and that we can mature and become more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. But I got questions about all of this. So what happens after we come home? What's that really like? How, how are things really different? And how much time does it take to become fully Christ-like anyways? And even though Gomer comes home, she still has some of that promiscuous life in her. Even though Israel comes home, Israel has still some of that Baal worship in them. And even though the prodigal son comes home, still there's some of that far country lifestyle still in him. And even when we come home, it seems that we still have this wandering heart in us. There's a story of a, of a young man who had fallen away from his faith. But God called him back home. And so he came back to the church where he first met Jesus. And he showed up on a Sunday morning for worship and saw the same people that were there to love him and pray for him when he was a teenager. And he was surprised to see that they didn't judge him, that they were so happy to see him even after being away for so long. So the young man sheepishly took a seat in the back row of, of chairs during worship. The next week he showed up again and he saw the same faithful people who were again really happy to see him and this time he took a seat in the middle row of, of chairs in the worship center. Because as you know, spiritual vitality is measured by how close to the front you sit. Right? <laughs> Thanks, guys. I, I, yeah. The third week, he, he comes in on a Sunday and he sits close to the front. And people are just amazed at the progress he's making, the, his moving up. In the fourth week, he comes in, and guess where he's sitting? He's sitting in the front row. He's sitting in the front row, and, and during the musical time of worship, um, he is just exuberant and expressive. He's raising his hands, and he's singing at the top of his voice. He's singing, Lord, fill me up! Lord, fill me up! And then there's a young woman sitting at just a few rows behind him, a skeptical young woman, who a few months ago went out on one date with this reformed sinner. 
And after hearing him sing so loudly and so expressively with his hands raised, Lord, fill me up, she sort of nudges her friend sitting next to her and says, yes, Lord, fill him up. But be careful, Lord, because he leaks. He leaks really bad. She was just, she was just pointing out that what the Lord already knew, that even redeemed human beings like each one of us, we have, well, we have, we have leakage problems in our life. And so did Gomer. And so did the prodigal son. And so did Israel when they returned to God. Because even though, even though we're born again, even though we trusted in Christ, even though we've been baptized as a profession of our faith, guess what? We aren't perfect. And we still have issues. And we still leak. Hosea chapter 14, verse 4, it says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. And God heals and he, and he loves us so freely. I, I um, try to avoid sports metaphors or sports illustrations, I should say, but I've, I'm going to go with one. Um, in 1929, in the college Rose Bowl uh, game, the University of California at Berkeley, the Bears, were up against Georgia Tech. They're the Bulldogs, I think, right? Roy Regals was playing offensive and defensive center. They called it defensive center, not nose tackle back then. And on a play in the second quarter, there was a fumble. And he picked up the ball and started running. Except that he was running the wrong way. That's why he got his nickname, Wrong Way Regals. It's a good thing he was a massive human being, a massive lineman, because he, couldn't, he wasn't built for speed. And as he was, in his mind, racing down the field, the quarterback for Cal caught up to him and tackled him on the one-yard line. When he realized what he had done, he felt so ashamed the opposing team eventually scored as a result of his poor field position. And at halftime, Regals was devastated, sitting by himself in the, in the locker room. The coach came in the locker room and, and announced that all the starters who started the game will start the second half, including Regals. And after the halftime pep talk by the coach, all the players were pumped up and they ran out in the field to start the, the third quarter, except Regals, who he just couldn't get over his mistake, and so he was just sitting in the locker room by himself. And the coach, Coach Price, came up to him and, and asked, or asked, how you doing? What's going on? And he said, Coach, I just feel like I ruined our chances. I feel like I, I lost the game for us, that I disgraced the name of the Cal Bears. And the coach simply replied to him. He said, Roy, Roy, the, the game's only half over. You get out there and give it all that you got. I'm not going to give up on you, Roy. So Regals went out in the third quarter. He played great in the second half. He even blocked a punt. But in the end, Cal lost the game 8-7. to seven. And that's where my sports illustration breaks down. Right there. <laughs> the beautiful part is 
that God is like that coach for us, that we all have issues, we all have baggage, we all leak, we all mess up, we all feel ashamed, we all feel guilty. Because we have this mentality that we try to earn our salvation and our forgiveness. But God says to us, hey, it's only halftime here. Get, up, get back out there. Don't, don't give up on your life. And we believe this, that God's love is, is endless. God's love is relentless. It's, it's strong. He'll never give up on us. And so because God's love is strong and relentless, number one, he'll never let us go. And number two, he's committed to help us grow. God is committed to help us grow. Through the book of Hosea, as we leave chapter 6, all the way up to chapter 14, to the end of the, end of the book, Hosea goes prophetic. He's speaking for God and condemning the sins of the people and calling them back to righteousness. And the story of the marriage relationship of Hosea and Gomer is implied, but it's never addressed directly again after chapter 3. And as we explore these final chapters, we find some clues as to what is being encouraged of Gomer after she came home to Hosea and the kids. And I think we can conclude that there were certain things that happened in the love story from the first three chapters. And one of the things we find is that there is a consistent call for Gomer to be one who is seeking righteousness and godliness and goodness. In Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, it says, Sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. In other words, God, God is saying, he's saying, now that you've returned, it's time to grow, everyone, to cultivate the soil of your heart, to break up that unplowed ground, to plant seeds of righteousness in your heart, to put down healthy roots in your life, to seek the Lord and to live a fruitful life again. That's what you do when you come home. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 6, it says, But you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. See, God would say, I've redeemed you. I've bought you back. I've brought you home. I want you to grow now. Now's the time for growing. I'm calling you to grow up and mature with love and with justice. And your life will be changed. Your life is going to be transformed. There's a, 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 a Bible word that's thrown around the church. <clears throat> it's a word of sanctification. Sanctification. It, it means being set apart more and more. It means becoming like Jesus more and more. Being transformed, being changed after you come home. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world after you've come home, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind. Have you ever asked God to change your heart? Have you ever asked God to transform your life, to change you? The beauty of our relationship with God is that we don't have to change to come home to God. But once we're home, His Spirit is going to change us from the inside out. And God wants us to change. He wants us to grow. He wants us to transform and be more like a son. 
the, the way I see it is it's simple to be saved. It's more complex to be sanctified. And we are called to both of those. In Hosea chapter 14, verse 5, it says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. And they will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. God is saying this, that after we come home, we will blossom beautifully like the lily. And we will grow strong and we will grow deep as we're rooted like a majestic cedar. It's interesting that he uses the word do, D-E-W, to describe things here. In the scriptures, if you do a word study on that word do, the scriptures tell us that it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would say, I'm going to be and do and become what you can't be and do and become on your own. The Holy Spirit is very much like this dew that we see in the morning. It's silent. He's silent in His coming. The Holy Spirit is saturating when it covers the ground in its content, in its refreshing, in its ministry. And as the dew, as you see it in your yard, it falls to the lowest places first. The Holy Spirit does its work in the most humblest of hearts. And I've been thinking and and, um, studying not just this text this week, but I'm getting ready to, to teach a class next week at Talbot Seminary and, and on, uh, on prayer and church planting. And I've been thinking about this with, with, our, with our church family. That I, I think, Nova, we need to hear this. We need to hear these words. I, I don't know if I've ever been a part or observed or seen a more capable church than the Nova Church family. With strong and gifted and intelligent people that are so talented and energetic, full of energy, and so well-resourced. The resources that we have here. But I wonder that with such talent and strength and resources... I wondered, do we see that we're still completely dependent on God? Is this our position? Is this how we move forward? That we're not just talented and gifted and well-resourced, but we're, even with that, we're completely dependent on God. Because I, how I praise God and I stand in awe that He's put together such a strong and gifted and capable people called Nova. But I wonder, does our strength, our, our talent, our giftedness mean that sometimes we're less dependent on God and more dependent on, on, on us because we're so capable and so talented? I, Charles Spurgeon, who was a, well, he's still known as the Prince of Preachers in, 
1829, he started his ministry in the UK. And, and he was, he's still known as one of the greatest preachers of all time. And people, he would meet new people, visitors who had come to their worship services in their church in London. And he'd meet new people at the front door, and he would say to them, um, would you like to see our heating system, our boiler room? And people would say, uh, not really, but okay. And, uh, and he'd lead them to the basement of the church where there were over 200 people on their knees praying for the worship service that was happening above them. And he accredited those intercessors with the success of his preaching. Billy Graham, before he would do a crusade, his advance team would come into an area. They came to L.A. I was part of that meeting before he came to L.A. One of the times, and, and, and his advance team would require that there were thousands of intercessors praying over an area, and they would have to pray for one year before he would come and do a crusade, and he would accredit the intercessors for the success of any crusade that he would have. So to my Nova family whom I love, let's continually go to God with a humble spirit, always dependent on him, not on our own strength. I have a friend who's a superintendent of a district, the Western District in San Francisco, and another friend who's planting a church in the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco, a very difficult area, as you know. And they told me about a church from the L.A. area that sent a, just a team of people, a hundred people, to just pray over the city for six months. And that's all that they were doing, was just praying over the city for six months because it, it was an area that, that God directed them to pray for, an, an area that they recognized as such a hurting area, the city of San Francisco. And after six months of prayer, that's all that they were doing with no other plans of just going and praying over the city. They were moved so much in their hearts and in their minds that that church that was based in the L.A. area sent a team to go plant a church in San Francisco. And that's one of the strongest evangelical churches today in the city. Let's be people who know our God-given capabilities and praise God for our resources and the blessings that we have and the talent and the capability of leaders and people and the energy that we have. But let's move in faith beyond our capabilities. Let's just not do things because, wow, we did them so well this year. Let's do it again next year. Let's see what God wants to do. Let's blanket all, of, all that we do with prayer Let's, let's seek a God-sized vision, a vision that's way beyond what we have, that we would do something great for God so that our faith would grow deeper by the Holy Spirit. We have a lot to learn from the recovery movement, and it's the movement of recovering alcoholics and addicts. And they have a keen understanding of just people. Just, they have a keen understanding of of everybody, and how people change, especially, and how people grow. And Christians in recovery, Christ followers who are in recovery, understand that it's at the point of humility, it's at the point of bottom, they call it, 
hitting bottom, that God is able to change somebody. But this isn't a principle that just, it's just limited to addicts and alcoholics. It's a principle that's true for every one of us who's a recovering sinner. Hi, my name is Dean, and I'm a recovering sinner. You see, I'm addicted to sin. I can't stop on my own until one day that Jesus comes and brings me back home, and I'll be set free. Bill W., a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, says in the big book, he says, how privileged we are. I, 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 I had to, to stop there. He's speaking to, as an alcoholic, and he's saying how privileged we are, how privileged alcoholics and addicts are, how privileged we are to understand so well the divine paradox that strength rises from weakness that humiliation goes before resurrection, that pain is not only the price, but the very touchstone of spiritual rebirth. How wise we would be if we were to approach God as leaking Christians and humbly requesting that he would continually fill us up by the Holy Spirit. The most amazing thing about God's love is that not only does he buy us back and bring us home, but that he restores us and he changes us, he transforms us to be more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. God's love is strong and relentless because he will never let us go and because he's committed to help us grow. Amen.